I'm Joey Grijalva with 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, and it is my great honor to be sitting with the legendary broadcaster, the prodigal son, who has returned to our city <laughs> to cover the 2019 <laughs> Eastern Conference Finals, Mr. Ernie Johnson Jr. Oh, the prodigal son. Wow. <laughs> yes. I hope I haven't squandered and wasted everything that my father gave me, but uh, yeah, I am, I am returning home, yes. First off, we got to talk about how cool was that homecoming for you last week? It was off the charts, Joey, because, um, you know, we knew, you know, once the Bucks got into the Eastern Conference Finals, we would be here. And before we left, a couple of nights before we left, Charles and I were, were talking and he said, you know, it'd be neat if you went back to your the block where you grew up and maybe we could just do like a block party or something. And I said, yeah, that would be fun to do. I don't know if we can get it all set up. But then we've got such great people we work with. And they said, and, and so they set it up. Brian Anderson, who's the voice of the Brewers, yep. uh, has uh, is real tight uh, with the uh, with the sausage folks. Mm -hmm. And so I called him and I said, "Hey, can you set us up?" And then the marketing manager uh, calls us, and then they set everything up, and and it turns out to be the most beautiful Wisconsin spring evening mm -hmm. and it was just great to have these people just wander out of their houses with their kids come down Shaq and charles were great they showed up kenny was in chicago because the draft combine was going on over there um but it was it was tremendous and then to have my old neighbors there who i hadn't hadn't seen in eons was just made it really really special and then after game two the mayor proclaims ernie johnson day and i had no idea that was coming you know because you know shacks and the you know answering a question says we got to take a time out you know i got somebody who's who wants to see you and i'm like what's going on here and then he comes up and he's got the proclamation it was it was just a very rich few days to be back home and to have something like that happen and and it was great for my mom is 90 she lives outside atlanta watches the show like crazy and she was just you know when i saw my old neighbors at the block party i called my mom and i said you got to talk to the richies they're here they're having we're having a block party and it made her night and so like the ripple effect was really cool so as you said that was your you know your childhood home. Yeah, you were you were born here, and in, in eight years, your your father was with the Milwaukee Braves. Yep, pitched for the Braves in the fifties. Was on that nineteen fifty seven World Championship team that beat the Yankees. And at you were seven. just a little guy at that point. Yeah, right? my recollections of that series are a little foggy because I was <laughs> I was one. But um, were you physically at County Stadium for some of those games? I'm. You know what? I don't know. I don't know if I was there or not. My sisters, my older sisters, were there. You know, it was. We spent a lot of time at County Stadium when my dad became the PR director after his playing days. So he was the PR director when the Braves moved from uh, Milwaukee to Atlanta. And so, yeah, we I spent many a night at County Stadium as a kid. You know, I remember the girders and the catwalks and, you know, what a great old ballpark that was. Um, but, yeah, that was it was a great way to it was a great way to be a kid. Yeah, I love that ballpark. Yeah. I was at the last game there. Were you really? Yeah. I was in high school at the time. That was yeah. something special. You don't special. forget stuff like that either. Oh, no, and it was a, a friend in, in class was like, my mom got got tickets. Do you want to go? I didn't know I was going. Yeah. It was that night. Oh, man. Aren't those the greatest moments? Uh, beautiful. <laughs> right out of the blue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then you never forget it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And did, did you go to Mother Good Counsel? I did. Okay. Yeah, MGC. I had a buddy from the block who went there. Yeah, yeah. so I was, you know, I think was, I was in the middle of third grade when we moved. 
Okay. So I had to finish third grade down in Atlanta. And, you know, when you're eight years old and all you've really known is Milwaukee and then they say you're moving to Atlanta, I mean, I didn't know where it was. I didn't know if it was, you know, just this side of the South Pole or if it was near Russia or if it was in the United States. So it was, you know, I, I was so totally like, you mean I'm not going to live here in Milwaukee on North 68th Street all my life? we got to move somewhere else? Uh, but, yeah, that was... Uh, you know, it's one of those times where, yeah, you pick everything up and you, you know, all these friends you've made, and it's like, see you later. Was that transition tough, though? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I think it is when you're eight years old. I think it can be a little difficult, but, um, but then you find out that kids make friends like that, mm -hmm. you know. I moved to a new place, and suddenly I've got new friends. But I, it's funny, I still, every now and then, will exchange a little something with a guy on Facebook who was one of my childhood friends who still lives in the Milwaukee area. Wow. And um, that's one of the great things about technology and that kind of thing and how far we've come is that, you know, you can find somebody. If you, if you look hard enough, you can find them. This next question is uh, courtesy of my little brother who's yeah. had a, a wonky sleep schedule the last couple of weeks watching the Bucks live from London, England. Oh, really? He's been waking up and going back to bed. Wow. <laughs> Um, he's curious, and, and this kind of plays into what you were just saying about packing up and moving from Milwaukee to Atlanta. Did you have some baseball cards in that move, and what were some of your favorite cards? Oh, I mean, there, look, there was a place when I was growing up where, where I always got my cards, and it was called Lorette's. Um, and it was just a little store on the corner of, I think, Center Street, and I don't remember the Cross Street, but that's where me and my buddies would always go. We'd ride our bikes over there, and baseball cards were nickel. And I had, oh yeah, I had all of them. So you're talking mainly early 60s, 62, 63, 64 baseball cards. And yeah, and they, and they all made the move with me down to Atlanta. And then as so many people can relate to, somehow they vanish. <laughs> somehow a spring cleaning comes around or you're out playing baseball at the, you know, at Endress Park and you come back and mom has done a spring cleaning and it's suddenly... Uh, I had a bunch of baseball cards here before. I know, but we had to. But, you know, probably some of that was my own doing, too. But, yeah, those were that was one of the great things was buying baseball cards and, and getting that really, you know, that petrified piece of gum with the white powder on it and mm -hmm. chomping down on that and seeing who you got and who you could trade for. I love those days. Any special cards that you still remember? You know, I still carry with me. In my in my work bag, I got three of my dad's old cards. So I got a couple of Milwaukee Braves and a Baltimore Oriole card, and I've got a Cleveland Indians card from that was his last year in pro ball. Uh, he went to spring training with the Indians, and then they released him. But but he was obviously he was there when the cards were made that year. So I have a Cleveland Indians card that we never really pitched for them in that 1960 season. But those are the most special cards I've got. Absolutely. And, and tell me about uh, the big guy, as you call him, uh, your father, Ernie Johnson yeah. Sr. Tagging along with him at work was always just a real thrill for me. You know, he taught me my, he didn't even have to teach me my love for baseball. I just kind of, you know, we were in a baseball family. I loved to play the game. He was the greatest in the world at throwing high pop-ups in, uh, in the front yard. You know, he had this great ability to, you know, you know, you could you could be basically in a, in a room ten feet wide, and he could throw a pop up, you know, seventy five feet straight up. You know, you, you wouldn't have to move; you could make the catch. Uh, and 
and so we'd stay in the front yard. He'd do that all all day long. He taught me how to pitch. He taught me all about baseball. But then just watching him be a father and being a husband and being a man, that's you learn a lot. Not so much that he sits you down and and says, "Look, you follow these five rules, you'll be a success." It's like I watched him, you know. So I watched how he treated people. I watched how how he uh, approached fatherhood, um, and you know, you you can learn a lot just from observing. And that was uh, that's how I learned from him. And and now tell me about your mother Lois. She's a she's a fighter. I understand you mm-hmm. called her uh, Betty White on steroids in the <laughs> yes, book. Yes, she is. I mean, it, and they're they're similar in appearance. They both have blonde hair. They're both beautiful. And and my mom's got so much energy. And she's ninety now. And um, and just is um, as as vivacious as ever and and she, you know it's funny like well i'll take her out for dinner somewhere and you know we may have a drink before dinner and and i'll say lola would you like another one she said if, if i have another one ernie i'll be too adorable yeah <laughs> so uh so she's she's a pistol and 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 you know when your dad is involved in baseball and especially when he was a broadcaster and I was growing up you know the baseball season takes you on the road for so much of the year so there were a lot of things he missed um, because he had to be on the road and my mom was always the one who was filling in every one of those gaps and a big time supporter and in and in my uh, illustrious baseball career which extended through one year of college baseball I hit one home run in my life in an American Legion game, and my mom was was out there watching that game, so she could enjoy it. Nobody else in the family was there, but she'll always have that 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 one, you know, rare time when I took a left-hander who hung a curveball in an American Legion game deep. She was there to watch it. Nice, she saw that crack. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, a, I'm a big NBA guy. Yeah. I, I grew up playing basketball, watching it whenever I could. And when I got into high school, you know, I was watching TNT on Thursday nights, NBA on TNT. And I was a good kid. I worked hard in school. I, I respected my parents. But I would stay up late past my bedtime when my parents were asleep watching the West Coast games. Yeah. And that little bit of, of rebellion, I think, played into my sort of sense of becoming independent becoming my own person mm-hmm. and I'm curious as to what things or events in your youth or maybe in college after college played a role in you sort of becoming independent and becoming your own man oh man that's such a that's that's a deep question I mean I think I think for all of us it's the freedom that the that a, that college brings you know for me it was like you know I go to the University of Georgia and you know that's for the first time in your life you're on your own and so this means I don't have to get up and go to church on Sunday morning with mom and dad. That means I can, I can sleep in. It means I can do what I want. I mean, it, and it's all how you handle that freedom to me. You know, it's not like, you know, boy, now I'm away from home. I'm going to do everything that's, everything I can do that's, um, you know, rebellious or do everything that I can that's pushing the envelope on, on, on what you should do rules-wise. It was just... Okay, now I've got the freedom. How am I going to handle that? And I think, you know, my freshman year, um, I enjoyed college life. And I was also playing baseball. And so, you know, ranking third on that was like going to class. And so, you know, it would be, uh, and, and, 
you know, you get a report card that's sent home from the University of Georgia, and it's like, here's mom and dad are saying, this is not what we're paying for, you know, that you would come home with these grades. And so I think you, I think you learn from that, but I think the only way that you grow up is to have that freedom. And you have to experience those things in life, those things that say, hey, you're lucky you got out of that without hurting anybody. And, you know, we tried to do that with our kids, too. It's like, I'm not going to be a parachute dad. I'm not going to come in anytime you might be getting in trouble. They're going to have to learn from screwing up. And I think uh, that's what, that's, you know, I go back to the way I was raised and the way I've, you know, tried to, you know, Cheryl and I have tried to do with the kids is that uh, enjoy life, experience life, and, and, and go get it. And you're going to make mistakes and don't, just don't try to let those mistakes be something that's going to alter your life or alter somebody else's life in a bad way. Um, and so it's not mom and dad to the rescue all the time. And it wasn't them with, with me either. And, and so I think, uh, and I was able to, you know, like spread my wings a little bit without doing anything too terrible that, um, that I would regret later. Gotcha. I, um, I just finished up a book about uh, jazz that's, that's coming out this summer. Yeah. And in jazz, I learned the mentorship is like, huge right right and in any profession mentorship you know is, is a major thing and it's kind of becoming a lost art in this world where you can youtube most the answer to most things right, right. Yeah. but but for you in your career you had the ultimate mentor your dad yeah i mean what are the things that you really honed in on for for you for your job taking along with him at, at at work and then also working alongside him later yeah you know what i think um and part of it i have answered already just by observing him and seeing how uh, he treated people with respect, uh, how he appreciated how, you know, viewers and listeners would come up to him and talk to him. And they'd have these conversations like they were long lost friends. And, and the, the way my dad prepared for every broadcast and how he never wanted to make himself the show. And he don't, I mean, he would tell me that he says, Ernie, the game's not about me. It's about the teams that are playing. I'm just here to describe it. So if I ever make it about me, then I'm then I'm doing the wrong thing. Those kind of words you never forget. And so, yeah, he's he was he was the greatest mentor uh, of all time. So he had you know, but his, his his simplest advice to me was be yourself. You know, it's not not like hear somebody on the air and say I'm going to be I want to sound just like that guy. You know, you have to let your personality come through. And I think that's what makes our show so much fun, you know, on, on the inside the NBA is that we are all just ourselves. We just all happen to, you know, approach the game in a, in a slightly different way from Charles and Kenny and Shaq to me. And we all know our roles. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of it just goes back to, you know, you hang with folks who who have been there and done that like my dad. And, and it's really one of the most gratifying parts of my job now, Joey, is that look, I've been in that chair for 30 years and I talk to college kids all the time. And part of me says, well, that's my job now. My job is to kind of tell the next wave of broadcasters, the next generation of broadcasters that, hey, this is kind of what I've experienced. You may experience the same thing. If you do, then, you know, here's how I got through it. I mean, I spent, I spent a half hour on the phone today with a guy on, from Twitter who had just commented on something he saw on the show last night and said he was a uh, broadcasting student at Kent State. Huh? And so I emailed him or messaged him on Twitter, and I said, I'd like to hear about what your career path is, and I'll be in touch with you. And so I reached out to him, and we talked for a half hour today. He had all kind of questions about the business and about you know, sports talk radio and TV and everything else. And, and to me, I think that's part of our responsibility is letting the guys who want to replace us 
know-how. You know, we kind of got to that point, too. Excellent. Um, one of my bosses at 88.9, Tariq Moody, he grew up in Atlanta mm-hmm. watching you and your dad call Braves games. Yeah. And I'm curious, for the last few decades, you've been covering sort of national, you know, the whole league, yeah. the NBA and MLB. And, and what are the differences between covering, you know, one team versus covering an entire league? I, th- I, I much prefer, and this is going to sound funny, but I mean, the greatest highlight, the highlight of my career is working with my dad for parts of those four years because he was revered. You know, working games on TBS and everything. When he when he stepped back from that and was working regional cable in Atlanta Sports South, that's when he and I worked together. And, and there there is a different there's a different kind of a feel for when you're you know you're hired by a team to be their play-by-play guy, or you're hired by a network to do the Sunday telecast. You know, I think. I think I mean, part of that is, I mean, you can listen to any broadcast of a baseball game around the country and you can tell who the home team is and who the road team is because, you know, these guys are going crazy for the home team. And I can never really get comfortable with that. I don't like to root for a team when I'm doing a game. So that's why I prefer really the national broadcast because you're playing it down the middle. You're giving both sides their due. Um, and, and that's not to say that that's an easy thing because I've done playoff games before where I've been accused by f- fan bases on both sides of rooting for the other team. And when that happens, it's like, okay, I must be doing my job because the Dodger fans think I'm rooting for the Braves and the Braves fan thinks I'm rooting for the Dodgers. So I must be doing it right. Gotcha. Now, let, let's talk about inside the NBA, which, yeah. you know, congratulations, you just... You all took home some Emmys yeah, recently. Yeah, it was a nice night, yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, you, you won the Emmy for studio host, yeah. um, and that's the title. But how do you conceive of your role on that show? Because you're doing a lot of different things and managing a lot of different personalities on that show. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I mean, I guess I'm, you know, they're the analysts. I'm the host of the show. I mean, I'm the guy who says, hey, welcome, here we are. I guess I'm the host. But it's been described so many different ways, Joey. It's been, you know, and people say, well, you're the, you're the point guard. You're making sure you get the ball to him and him and him. Or you're the traffic cop. You're the you're the ringmaster with the whip and the chair, trying to keep the lines. And the best thing I ever heard was from a guy on a radio interview said, I, "Ernie, I've heard all that stuff. You're the dad who's driving cross country with the kids in the back seat, and you're turning over and saying, if I hear one more peep, I'm turning this car around.' And that is the way it feels every now and then. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, I'm. You learn something every time you watch a game with those guys. They're the ones who have been out there, and um, plus the fact we just enjoy being around each other. We really do. And 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 for a show to have three of its guys there for basically 19, 20 years together. I've been there 30, Kenny's 20, Chuck's 19, Shaq's the last seven or eight. Uh, to have that kind of longevity is is uh, pretty rare in TV because there's usually somebody, you know, in an executive position who wants to tinker and say, well, I think this would probably work better if this guy were here. We need to bring this guy in. You know, sometimes you just kind of ride with, uh, you know, a chemistry that works and guys who – play off each other well and I, I don't know how it works I don't you can never predict it but it's been a heck of a ride to be on man what, what a lot of people love about that show 
uh, is that element of surprise, that authentic element of surprise that you that you bring. And it, it, reading the book early on, there was a decision made that you would have these spontaneous moments or or things that maybe someone on one of the hosts know, but the yeah. other one doesn't. Yeah. And and just the other night, there was a small one. Um, when you were on game two, uh, Shaq mentioned that he went to Pax Jewelers and bought your wife's earrings. Yeah. And you had this very small but genuine appreciation that I just, uh, that's just, no, that's so I, great about that but show. That's, but that's what we do. And, and, and that's why, we, look, Kenny and Shaq and Chuck would not want to be at the studio three hours before we hit the air for a production meeting. And we wouldn't want them there anyway because we don't want everybody involved in the show to know that, hey, in the second segment of the pregame show, we're going to do this. Or in the third segment of the postgame show, we're going to do this. We want genuine reactions. The producer and I need to be on the same page. We need to know what we got in the saddlebags. Oh, we got this embarrassing piece of video of Kenny? that we're gonna, Okay, good. That'll be like, it'll be great to watch him because when he reacts to that, I know what Shaq's going to say, and then Charles will probably do this. So, uh, no, we want gut-level genuine reactions we want a, a conversation or a discussion or a debate to just kind of organically happen we don't want them to say hey look guys in the second segment get your remarks prepared because we're going to talk about whether it should be the greek freak or the beard who wins mvp you know we want to be able to let some of that stuff just happen and and half the time the stuff that people talk about the day after the show is stuff that was never discussed in the production meeting. It's Shaquille saying he didn't know that the Golden State Warriors played in Oakland, as he did on the air one night. As, as I'm doing the Golden State highlights, and I'm saying, so we go to Oakland for the highlights, and then boom, and look at that crowd in Oakland. And Shaq says, how come you keep saying Oakland? <laughs> I said, because that's where they're playing the game. How come? I said, because that's where the Warriors play, and we're live. I mean, this is while the what highlights are going. <laughs> and I said, because that's where they play. And he says, I did not know that. <laughs> I said, Shaq, how long did you play in the, in the league? He says, all I know is we, we stayed in San Francisco. I didn't know we were going to Oakland. I just got on the bus. And Charles then jumps and kills him on it. And so the rest of the show basically is references to Shaq not knowing where the Warriors play. But you could never sit in a production meeting, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and predict that, at one o'clock in the morning, that's going to happen mm -hmm. uh, organically. You know, we we the show can take such wonderful turns, and people say, "Oh, you, you just make me laugh." And it's like, well, yeah, it, it, the show is funny, and most of the time, it's unintentionally funny. Yeah. It just happens to be that way. And so much of talk TV strives to do that, but y'all pull it off. No, so and, that's, and that's the problem. And that's yeah. you know, that's because we've worked with other producers on different events where they try to say, hey, we're going to do this funny thing and this funny thing and this funny thing and this funny thing. And it's like, well, we don't know if it's going to be funny. And the funnier stuff just happens mm -hmm. you know, when you don't try to manufacture it. We've got these three great personalities I'm working with. And they, they can all at any moment say something that throws the show off the rails, makes you laugh or makes you tear up or, you know, it's 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 a it's a very special mix and i never never take for granted what what a good thing we got going on there 
So we've got a, a bit of a boisterous crowd at the bar behind us at the hotel here. It's a nice setting, though. This it's, is good. It's not the same as the crowds you, you've been, you know, hosting at in front of uh, here in Milwaukee and right. over in Toronto at, at Jurassic Park outside of their arena. Yeah. And last night was such a great moment where, for the most part, they're chanting and you're, you're staying with your bits. You're trying to listen to, yeah. to the guys. But last night they started singing Oh Canada. Yeah. And y'all made the decision to take a pause. You, you put the mic to him and you started singing along and Shaq started singing yeah. along. And, and, and here's the, th the funny thing about that is we had, we had finished the first segment of the show because we're live and we thought, you know, like, like when we were in Milwaukee for the first two games uh, and the crowds were spectacular in, in the, the Deer District. I mean, and, and just as excited as they can be for this kind of a time. And so we get to Jurassic Park and in game three, they're a little, you know, they're they're kind of excited, and it's a big crowd, but you can tell that there's, like, apprehension. Like, if we lose this game, our season's just about over. So they win that game, and then they win game two, and we thought, oh, this place will be going nuts out here for postgame. But a lot of the folks split. But there were, you know, there were some in there. And in that first commercial break after our first segment, we're just kind of messing around, and this group starts singing O Canada, and we kind of join in, and we do it. And we thought, okay, now it's time to go back to live. And Shaq and I are talking about something related to the game, and Shaq is making his point. And here these guys crank it up again while we're live. And there's, nothing, there's no way I can sit here while I'm listening to you, and I'm hearing a producer in my ear, and I'm hearing these guys singing O Canada, that I can say, well, the people at home will never know that that's O Canada that's singing. Shaq, you keep making your point. It's just like, hold on. Guys, okay, we're going to do this. And, and, and that's what makes it fun. That's, that's, you know, we do all the things uh, and always have done all the things on that show that TV producers have said, no, you can't do that. You know, it's like Charles spills something on his tie, you know, and we spend 45 seconds talking about what a messy eater he is for the halftime show. You know, it's like, you know, other, other shows would say, Quick, somebody uh, get one of those Tide pens. Get that spot out of there. We don't want them to look like that. We, we live for those times when somebody does something or somebody dresses a little differently. Or Kenny wears a suit that somebody tweets about, and then we're all over him for the next two minutes. That's us. That's what we like yeah. to do. Yeah, and you were mentioning the camaraderie, the chemistry, you know, makes it so special. But when Shaq joined the team seven years ago, was there a little bit of a, a – was, was Charles a little shook? Was he a little intimidated? No, or did no. it take some time to ingratiate himself no. into the crew? I, I, it was more just a kind of a, a learning curve for Shaquille, I think, at that yeah. point. Um, because the reason he wanted to come and work with us is, I, you know, he had watched the show. He had seen what fun we had and how unpredictable it was. And, look, Shaq's the world's biggest kid, and he loves to laugh. And he loves to have it, and he loves to make people laugh. So I think he thought that there was a responsibility on him to come up with some kind of a bit every show, like push that Christmas tree over on me, it'll get two billion YouTube hits and people will like it. Um, the, the inside joke with me and Kenny and, and Charles was the, the dude's going to want to set himself on fire here pretty soon. And we even told him, that Shaq, you don't have to do something every time. You know, a lot of the humor just takes care of itself because it just happens. Um, and so there was a kind of a curve of uh, you can be funny, we will have a good time, but always be prepared to talk hoop when you get there. And I, and I remember having Shaq, sitting with Shaq in my office one day, and I said, you know what makes Charles great? I said, 
it's the fact that while he does say some outrageous things that might get a lot of pub, there's not a night that that he shows up here that he doesn't have five things he wants to say about a certain player, about a certain team or something. He wants the opportunity. I said, do that same thing. Come in here armed with something you say, boy, before the night's over, I really do want to talk about so-and-so's defense or so-and-so being an MVP candidate or how disappointed you are in a team. I said, have something because there's not going to be a night all the time where you know, you can, you, we can bring somebody in to tase you and see if you can take it. That's, you know, which he's offered to do also. I've been to Sun School. You could tase me. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> That's great. I read in the book that you do a little poetry on the side. Yeah. And there was a, a poem in 2014 that you did for a small group of uh, executives and NBA owners yeah. that potentially, you know, ostensibly saved the uh, TNT NBA contract. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could maybe recite a line or two from oh, that geez. one? No, you know what? If I, had it, if I had it in front of me, I would recite the whole thing. But what it basically was, and it goes back so many years, because when we used to do the NFL back in the 90s, um, you know, and I, I'm trying to think of the genesis of the whole thing. Pete Van Weeren, who used to do Braves games with my dad, uh, used to do poems every now and then for events that he would MC. And I, you know, I'd be at those events, and I'd say, man, is that a great talent to be able to do that? And I got to know John Wooden a little bit, and I knew how John uh, used poetry to keep his mind sharp. And so I started doing that, and when we had the NFL contract, um, we came to the end of our season. We did half the season on the road, and then somebody else took over for us. And so we had the rap party, and I decided I'm going to write a poem about all the things that have happened on the road. And some of it's going to be things that people don't want to hear repeated, but it's just going to be an in-house thing. And I wrote like three pages of stuff. And, and people were laughing. They were clapping. They said, oh, read it again. And so it became something that I did for all the major events we'd do. You know, whether it's for the seminar going into the NBA season where I'd recap the previous year or Wimbledon or whatever. And, and so it got to the point where they became kind of like a thing. You know, there would be some event at Turner, and they say, hey, somebody's retiring from the engineering department. Here are a bunch of facts on his life. Would you write a poem about it? And I said, sure. And so Lenny Daniels, one of our executives, came to me before this handful of NBA execs came by and said, if you could write a poem about our dedication to the NBA, uh, I'd love for to, to have you kind of unannounced just come in and read that. So I... And it was like, I want to say, four days before the event. So the, the pressure was kind of on. And so I did. I just sat down and I wrote this thing out. And, um, and then it was uh, Ted Leonsis, the, the uh, Washington uh, Wizards owner, who told Sports Business Journal later, he said, boy, a, a real goosebump moment was, was when Ernie Johnson came in and read this poem right from his heart. And I was like, wow, I had no idea, you know, that – it would impact one of those guys that way. But, um, yeah, that was, a really, that was a really cool thing. It was just like, wow, thanks for doing that. And you know what else was cool? I was at, um, and again, I'm sorry for the long answers and stuff like this, but um, no one, year, one year I was out at, um, 
You know when Michael Jordan used to do his flight school? And he, he, it cost an arm and a leg for all these guys to come and go to a basketball camp with Michael. And he had the, he had the big name coaches. He had Mike Fratello, Jay Wright, all these guys who would coach a team, and they'd have a tournament, and it was, and it was really, you know, big time. And you know, they'd give a championship ring to the guys who won the thing. It was a week long big deal in Vegas, and so. Uh, I get this ask from Michael to say, would you come out and emcee the opening banquet at our place? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And so I, I wrote a poem for that thing to introduce all the coaches. And um, I did that, and the night wraps up, and I didn't know it, but B.B. King was there that night. And his guy comes up to me and says, B.B. King really liked that poem. Would you come over here and meet him? And I was like... Dang! Yes, of course I would. And so I went over and, and I and I said, "How you doing?" He said, "I really like that rhyme." And I said, "Well, I, I said I could I couldn't ask for a higher compliment. It was unbelievable, man. It was that uh, was cool. That's cool, man. Um, so as you've said in your career, you you covered a lot more than just basketball, baseball. You've covered international sports, the Olympics. You have a lot of you know big memories like. Jack Colin Jack Nicholas's yeah. you know final major in St yeah. Andrews and you even uh, walked a kangaroo on the beach in Australia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are the big things. I'm curious about what are some of the mundane things about the job that you cherish. Uh, you know what it, it what it is is the preparation. I re- I'm still am addicted to the work that it takes to get to get myself ready for a show, and it's probably a lot more than I need to do. I probably, you know, I could, I, I could rely more on our, our stat guys to provide me with some of the stuff. But there's a certain part of me that for me to really feel like I'm in, engrossed in the job, I need to do that hands-on stuff. And if it ever gets to the point where the, where the preparation becomes mundane, then it's time for me to say, see you later. But that's still what drives me. Doing the show is fun. I mean, that's the easy part. The work is all the background stuff you put into it. And, um, and so if, if, the, if all of that background work ever gets to be tedious or gets to be, or I get to the point where I say, well, I don't really feel like doing that, then I'll know that it's time to say, see you later. Yeah. So I'm, I'm no sports broadcaster, but uh, this year I did take a job at, a part-time job at Miller Park, home of the Milwaukee Brewers. Yeah. Um, just to make a little extra cash for my family. Yeah. Um, but subsequently, the, the job has sort of taken me away from my family, sometimes more than I'd like to be because baseball has no set time. Yeah. You know that. So I, I think I have some familiarity with that struggle between loving your job, loving the game, but yeah. also not wanting to be away from your family for extended periods of time. Yeah. So I'm wondering how you've been able to balance that throughout your career. I think, and you know, you don't have to do what we're doing now to know what that feels like you know one of the ways i've reconciled that in the past is you know you know like when you're especially when your kids are young and you know you're going to be missing something because you're going to be out of town you know and thankfully look my studio job most of the stuff i do is in atlanta you know so i may be having to work but at least i'm not out of town and um but at times like this when you're on the road for a few weeks for playoffs it's difficult and i you know, sometimes I would tell the kids, I said, you know, I know this is hard, but you know, you know, Mr. Rutherford who lives next door, 
he's gone six days a week or five days a week. And he's, he comes back for the weekends, but then he's got to be on the road. So it can be worse than I've got it. You know, I, there are dads who that's what they have to do. Um, and it used to tear me up. And I'm, I'm serious, Joey. There were times where when I had to go out of town, especially like when we were doing the Olympics or the Goodwill Games or something like that, and I was going to be gone for three or four weeks, I, it would tear me up. I'd be in tears. I'd be driving to the airport, and I would just be in a funk. And, and then I began to look at it in a different way, and I said, how lucky are you that you have a family that you love so much that it tears you up to be away from them? You know, what if, you, what if it was, hey, I got a month-long trip coming up. Later. Good luck to you. I, I turned it around and considered myself blessed to have a job where I was going to miss my family that much and they were going to miss me that much. And so that, that actually helped me to try to, to kind of get through times like that. But I think, you know, we all have to do what we have to do. Um, doesn't mean we have to love that part of it, but it takes a very understanding wife and kids and, and understanding on my part too. Um, what I've always tried to do before the baseball playoffs these days is that I try to get my wife out of the house for a week before the playoffs start. I'll say, look, I'll take care of everything here. You and your tennis partner go down to the beach, play tennis every day, get away from everything, and recharge. And then when you come back, I'll go to the playoffs. So you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to help out in any way that I can. Of course, after 36 years of marriage, you've tried just about everything. So, so uh, yeah, that's that's the latest uh, that's the latest plan of attack. Um, while we're on the topic of your family, you, you had just mentioned sort of the commitment to the meticulousness of the preparation of the job, and and you know not rushing it, taking your time, doing it. How has that sort of prepared you for caring for your son Michael, who lives with muscular dystrophy? Um, I think, I think uh, again, so much of this is perspective because when that whole chapter of our lives began, you know, we already had two kids and, and it was like, you know, why rock the boat? You got a boy and a girl. They're both great. They're both healthy. Let's, you know. And, and then, you know, we, when we decided to adopt from Romania and, um, and Cheryl went over there and, and brought Michael home, and, and, and we knew that he had so many issues and that, that it wasn't going to be easy. Um, and then it turns out he had muscular dystrophy, and that doesn't get better. It just, it just gets worse, and a lot of kids don't get out of their teens when they have it. And, you know, look, he celebrated his 30th birthday this past August, and that is, you know, we are blessed beyond measure by his presence in our house because... Uh, despite his, you know, some of the limitations he has, he has this wonderful spirit. And, and now when he's 30 years old and he's on a ventilator and he needs somebody to do everything for him, here's where the perspective comes in. It says, look, his condition puts me in a servant's um, posture from the moment I wake up in the morning. We're here to serve and so, Michael, what do you need? I'm here to do that for you. And it, 
and in a world where you know you're kind of encouraged to look hey it's it's all about me and it's a me-centered thing this is an immediate when you wake up saying okay let's 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 take care of michael and get him everything he needs and so um look he's he's you know people have talked about well what you did for him getting him out of an orphanage in Romania. He's done much more for us than we'll ever do for Michael. He's, he's been such a blessing to us. For our two kids, it was like a realization that, you know what, life isn't all uh, happy meals and toys or us. There are kids out there who have nothing. You just have a new brother who knows what that's all about. And so, yeah, that's, you know, his situation. And, you know, we adopted Carmen from Paraguay, and she was totally healthy and, and then we adopted two girls out of foster care about eight or nine years ago, and they're teenagers now. Um, I think we've just always kind of tried to look at this and say, um, how are we going to make the place better? And let's not think about us. Let's think about giving somebody else a shot. Yeah. Um, that, that's excellent, Ernie. Um, and as we were talking about, as I was telling you off mic before we, we started recording, the last thing I, I wrote for 88.9 was a piece sort of uh, – talking about the similarities between what makes a great jazz combo is some of the same things that makes a great basketball team. And I'm curious, what are some of your favorite sort of sports life metaphors? Oh, man. Um, well, I mean, my all-time favorite is really what I sort of based the book Unscripted on is is um, these these BlackBerry moments that have nothing to do with any kind of a mobile device, but you know, the short version of the story is I'm playing in a Little League game that was once delayed because two of our outfielders jumped over the fence to look for a ball and then abandoned the look for the ball because they saw wild blackberries growing and they were just sitting there in the middle of a game eating blackberries. And, And I think that's been like the metaphor the or the parable for me has been like don't be afraid to step away from the game whatever whatever's occupying all of your time and your attention because there are going to be some blackberry moments out there that are so sweet and so rare uh, that you have to appreciate them and not just walk past them so our family has just come to call any cool moment that we all enjoy together a blackberry moment and um, and my hope is that you know the Johnson family for years and years to come will always hand that down and always be referring to it as a as a blackberry moment when when you can impact somebody else's life with an unexpected moment that that makes their day better and and things like that happen to me too I mean the mayor of Milwaukee showing up at our set to give me that proclamation was a blackberry moment I didn't see that coming you know and I was um, so it's a real wide-ranging term, but you know those moments when you see them, and in moments that impact you, and moments that uh, kind of make you say that, uh, "Oh, this is a pretty good life we got here." Yeah. Um, Eighty-eight-nine is a radio station, after all. So I'd be remiss not to ask you a little bit about music. Yeah. And I know in the book you'd mentioned trying to go to a Emerson, Lake, and Palmer concert. <laughs> <laughs> that your parents were, were not on board with. Oh, it was so funny, man, because, <laughs> because my best buddy, Mickey McMillan, and I, you know, we're like 16, 17 years old, and we're just big ELP fans. You know, we love Keith Emerson on the keyboard. Uh, it just We just thought they had a great sound. And so Mickey 
tells me one day, he says, man, there's a concert in North Carolina. It's like one of these big festivals in North Carolina. There are like 10 bands there. ELP is going to be there. We could go up on Friday, spend Saturday, come home Sunday. And I said, oh, I'm in. I'm in. And, and so I, his parents were saying, okay, man, Mickey, you can do it. Mickey, you're going to drive, right? Yeah. And, and my mom had her reservations about it. And then my dad got back from the ballpark one night after, you know, this is the night before we're supposed to leave. And Mickey and I are in like the living room at my house waiting for my dad to get home. And he, uh, you know, after my mom had told me, Ernie, I really don't think you should go. He said, there's going to be, there'll be guys with chains and stuff up there. It's going to be dangerous. And I was like, okay. Mom, really, it's, it won't be that kind of a crowd. My dad gets in. My dad gets back from the ballpark after a Braves game, puts his briefcase down, pops his head in the, in the, uh, in the thing and says, uh, I'll be the jerk here. You're not going anywhere. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> so, end of discussion. He didn't use jerk either, but uh, for our audience, uh, yeah, you yeah. can fill in the blank. But it was, it was really, it was one of those. Mickey and I went, well, I guess we're not going to ELP. Oh, man. I'm curious as to what are some of your concerts that, you know, member ones that you did attend? Um, like, who are some of your bands? Um, I've been to, a, I've probably been to a half dozen Jimmy Buffett concerts. Uh, and I like, I like Jimmy because I think it's any, I think anytime you can do your job barefoot, it's pretty cool. And I think it's impossible to be in a bad mood when you're at a Buffett concert. There's so many smiles and it's such a cool thing. Um, you know the first concert I ever went to? Tell me. The Beatles. Wow. That's my first concert in Atlanta, 65. My two older sisters were beside themselves because at that time, you know, I'm nine years old. My sisters are 13 and 17 at the time. And here come the Beatles. And it's like, I remember some of it. I remember it being a very short show. It couldn't have been more than 45 minutes. And, um, but yeah, they, you know, they ran out from one of the dugouts in their, in their, khaki colored suits and did all their songs that lasted about two and a half minutes each and um, and it was awesome so um, that was the first one and I you know I've been to you know I'm not a huge concert guy but I've yeah I've been to you know I've seen I've seen you know Chicago and the Beach Boys and Paul Simon and Dan Fogelberg I was a big Fogelberg fan when I was in college and um and I just thought, and part of that is, you know, I just, I just enjoyed good writing. I just enjoyed music with a message, and I enjoyed harmonies and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, so those were, those are some of the, some of the guys. Cool. Um, let's talk about Giannis now. A lot of people know he's a special player. Yeah. Now, I don't think as many people know how of a special human he is. I mean. I, I, I've been following him since he first got to town. I actually moved back to Milwaukee right when he was a rookie, and I've just been following his career. I got to interview him last year for a piece I wrote about the Bradley Center, kind of remembering the Bradley Center. And, yeah. and it was a short interview, and, and his innocence and his sort of wide-eyed you know, uh, sense of, of approach to life, was it's so genuine. Yeah. I, I was telling him about the Bradley Center and how they're going to knock it down, and, and I was breaking the news to him, and he just jumped back. Really? And he's like, what? They're yeah. not going to, like, it's not going to be Where are we going to play? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the guy is just, he's so humble, and humility is so so rare in, in professional sports. Yeah. Um, the immigrant story, I mean, he's just such a special guy. I mean, what, what, what is your take on, on yeah, I just I see a guy who, for whom family is is vital, 
and Absolutely. and and a guy who has never been overly impressed with his own talent. I think he realizes he has this skill set and an ability to do things that a lot of guys can't do, but he is not he hasn't let it go to his head. He's one of those guys, Joey, that you just hope never changes. You know, you see you see guys during the course of their careers who you say, "Boy, that guy really gets it." I hope he doesn't turn into one of those guys, and then they do. But I don't see that in Giannis. I think I see this is not a this is not a show of humility. This is who the guy is, and 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 I think he he considers himself so fortunate to be. Look, they're going to pay me to do this, and, and and play this game that I love, and and he's just I, he just looks he looks like the perfect teammate to me. What do you think? improvements adjustments he needs to make to become a champion well you know obviously you can look at him and say look if he, if he were a better knockdown shooter he'd be absolutely unstoppable um i don't know if you're asking too much for somebody to have every facet of their game be a 10 out of 10 on the scale but i thought it was funny we had oscar robertson on the pregame show before game one and i and shaq even asked him that question he said you know, you look at Giannis, he said, so what does he have to do? Does, does he have to develop a, a, a jumper to be, to be taken to the next level? He said, Magic never had a jumper. <laughs> yeah, That's all that. Oscar yeah. said, as, as only Oscar can. And it's like, he didn't even need to explain. He just said, Oscar, he said, Magic never had a jumper. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So, no, I think, I think he would, it would, it would add another level to his game. And I know he tries to shoot the three ball every now and then, and, and, and has some success with it, but I still think he's doing teams a favor if he settles for that, you know, because they would they would probably say, Giannis, you shoot that three as many times as you'd like to tonight. We'll live with that. Uh, he's at his most devastating when he's taken it to the hole and, and uh, you know, with those physical attributes, he has been able to get by, guys. Awesome. A couple more questions here. Um, anyone who's been following... Uh, the Bucks on TNT this year know that you've made it no secret you were born and raised in Milwaukee until yeah. you were eight, and uh, you've teased that if the Bucks were to make the Eastern Conference Finals, you would come back to the, as you say, mean, mean streets, streets of Milwaukee, yeah. jokingly, yeah. and uh, and the mayor even made it a point to uh, to mention how idyllic the street <laughs> you grew up on was uh, on air. But but I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, we do have some mean streets in Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, I there are levels of poverty, segregation, and crime in the city that are alarming, and it's something we, we, we struggle with, and it's just as much a part of who we are as this brand new arena and all the cool things that are happening mm -hmm. in downtown. Um, and I missed the, the, the NBA tip-off before game three on Sunday, but I recorded it and I watched it the next day, and there was something on that broadcast that really kind of broke my heart and, and got under my skin. and. It was, a, it was a yellow sign that a guy uh, in Jurassic Park was holding up that said, at least we don't live in Milwaukee. And I'm wondering, Ernie, if you, know, you, you grew up here for a little bit, you come back a lot, you, you, you've spent time in the city. I'm wondering if you can say something about the city, about the people that might be an antidote to what I was feeling seeing that and what a lot of Milwaukeeans probably felt seeing that. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if, and I don't remember the sign that you're referring to, but I think, you know, sometimes that, that, that sign could have been a fill-in-your-blank, you know, whoever they were playing. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't, so I, I don't know if I would take that as a, 
as, as a direct hit on the city of Milwaukee. But I'm, look, I, I know what Malcolm Brogdon has said about it. I know what the stats say about the segregated part of the city. And I, I would, obviously, you don't want that to be the image of a city. Uh, and it's not the city that I grew up knowing. I, you know, and again, given I move when I'm eight or nine years old, I'm hardly the guy to talk about uh, uh, demographics or the social impact of, of where I was living. All I've known is that every time I've come back here, it's felt like home. And, and I know that the more of those walls we can break down, the better we're going to be. One of the best times I've had during this trip was going to Mr. Perkins' restaurant the other day with Kenny, I mean, with Shaq and Charles and a few of our other um, security guys and stuff. And the family was in there, and we all just, they had closed the restaurant a little bit early just so we could have a private lunch in there. And we all just kind of hung out. And look, the moments like that that you can have that kind of shrink the world and say, look, we're all on this planet, and we're all dealing with, you know, what can seem to be like a very uh, divisive atmosphere in the country anytime you get a chance to knock that down and just kind of try to appreciate where somebody's been from i think i think we're on the right track there and i think you know you can't be afraid of of having everybody come together and learn about the other person have some empathy and and so i would hope that that would be that that would be what cities around the country are known for milwaukee included is like is is empathy and not you do your thing, I do my thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Appreciate that, Ernie. Um, last thing here. Are you familiar with Nardwar? Uh, you're going to have to fill me in a little bit. Nardwar is a Canadian radio and Internet personality who interviews musicians, oh, okay. uh, mostly rappers. He's kind of a wacky guy. Yeah. And he is known for his team does crazy in-depth research about their subjects, uh -huh. stuff that surprises them in the same way you guys surprise each other on yeah. TNT. I mean, uh, his Drake interviews are, are pretty legendary, really? being, being a fellow Canadian, yeah. and, and he just dug deep and, and had these gems that scared them. Like, How did you, who told you this about me? And, wow. and, and he always brings them gifts, and the gifts are relevant to their life in some way. And yeah. so I was trying to do a Nardwar moment with you. Oh, I, had a, I had a vinyl of the 1957 World Series broadcast highlights yeah. that I could not find today. I was looking all over for it. I was going to oh, give it to you. Oh, man. But I do have another gift, a, a backup gift, and that is you, the... Uh, gifts are not necessary. You know what, this... <laughs> I'm, let me tell you something. This conversation has been a gift in itself for me. This is... You have no idea how many shows I do, how many radio shows we do, how many times it, it, it just gets to the point of like, okay, let's talk about points in the paint, and let's talk about... Book. And this has been refreshing, so I love... Just the, ch the chance to just, you know, back and forth with you, man. It's been great. That means a lot, Ernie. But I do have a gift for you. It's, it, I mentioned it br briefly before. This is my book, forthcoming book. This is an advanced press copy. It comes oh, out man, this that's July. Awesome. It's a pictorial history of jazz in Milwaukee. I love that. That's tremendous. Thank mm. you so much, Thank man. you for, for still repping Milwaukee after all these years. Oh, come on, man. It's my pleasure. It's, it's, yeah. it's always great to be back here. And, I, and, uh, and again, please, everybody understand... Yeah, the Mean Streets was always just a, a, a joke for me because the guys would say, you know, he had a tough upbringing. And I was like, 
Yeah, I was, I was on the mean streets of Milwaukee. As the mayor points out, was the Leave it to Beaver Street of Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, it is so good to be back here. It's so good to bump into friends um, and viewers who were who – were, and, and, I, and, I, and I get the distinct, distinct feeling, I, I really do, that, that um, it's appreciated that we're talking Milwaukee up. Mm-hmm. And, and I make a point of getting out to the set early before the show so I can hang with these people. So I can say, hey, and, and thank you for watching us and supporting us. And, and so um, this, has been, this has been one of the best conference final trips I've ever taken, if not the best in 30 years of doing this. Well, thank you, Ernie, for sitting down with me. Oh, man, I appreciate <laughs> you. It was really was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir.